so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. As we continue our mini-series on our recently released volume, The Digital Public Square with BNH Academic, I'm joined by David French to talk about his contribution entitled, Can the Government Save Us from Ourselves? The Legal Complexities of Free Speech and Content Moderation. Today, David and I talk about the debates over regulating the technology industry in light of the challenges of free expression today, as well as the role of personal virtue in the public square. David is an opinion columnist at the New York Times and previously served as senior editor at The Dispatch, as well as a contributing writer to The Atlantic. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, a former lecturer at Cornell Law School, and a past president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. David is a New York Times bestselling author, and his most recent book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. He's also a former major in the United States Army Reserve and is a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom, where he earned a Bronze Star. And now let's join our conversation. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today here again on the Digital Public Square. It's been fun because last time we had you on, we were actually talking about your book, Divided We Fall, and it actually was originally scheduled to be on January 6th. And most of us know what happened on January 6th. So we ended up rescheduling (laughs) that podcast. But it was kind of uh, interesting given what happened there on January 6th at the United States Capitol as well as kind of the role of technology in the public square and how that was shaping the public conversation. And so we talked a little bit about that. But before we dive into our topic today about talking about free speech and content moderation and specifically 230, I wanted to kind of uh, let listeners know a little bit about your background, not so much your biography, but specifically kind of what drove you or kind of interests you in technology policy and all the issues swirling around that. Yeah, I came to technology policy conversations, not because I'm some sort of Silicon Valley VC, but because I'm a lifelong defender of the First Amendment. And so I came to tech policy. I came to the arguments around the social media moderation topic through the prism of civil liberties in the First Amendment. As we know, a giant bulk, certainly not all, but a giant bulk of our speech about anything, uh, whether it's you know Marvel versus DC or it's about you know, gender ideology or about 
anything is now taking place online. And it's taking place online, often in privately owned and, and typically on privately owned spaces. And so what ends up happening then is you often have a kind of two conversations going on at once. And I'll call them the difference between the should conversation and the must conversation. The should conversation is what should, say, Twitter or Facebook or Reddit or YouTube or you name it, what should they do to facilitate free speech? And then the must conversation is what must they do? In other words, what can the law say about it? And those are often two very different conversations. Think of it like this. If you're at a church, in the church, you're going to have a lot of conversations about what should we do, say, about pastoral discipline or about church policy, etc. And those will be heated and contentious, and people have dramatically different points of view. But then many times people then rally when the government comes in and tries to say, here's what you must do. You'll say, no, 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 hold on. Leave us alone. This isn't your realm. The church is our realm. The state is your realm. And you cannot dictate to us our policies. And you often have some of these same kinds of conversations instead of, say, a church or a political party or a social organization. Instead, you have these social media companies who are saying, here's what we need, the argument we need to have amongst ourselves as to how we'll moderate. And then the government tries to say, no, 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 here's how you must moderate. And then that starts to implicate the First Amendment. Yeah, and that's one of the fascinating parts about that is, is kind of the role of the government in the public square in terms. And obviously, you have very particular views on that as well. But it's interesting because that's where even amongst the volume itself, amongst the contributors, we have some differences about how to think through kind of the role of government, especially as these technology companies take on a much more prominent role than maybe industry did in the past in terms of regulating communication and conversation throughout our society. But it didn't start here which is really interesting where a lot of Christians at times, and really all of us in society, we kind of jump in kind of in the fever pitch, exactly what's going on right now and forget that there's actually a longer history, a longer story that's kind of played into this. I remember as you do kind of growing up with the days of American Online and CompuServe and Prodigy. I remember those little AOL discs. We had hundreds and hundreds of them. We used them as Frisbees, actually, in the Walmart parking lot uh, because we had so many of them. And for many listeners, they're like, what are you guys talking about? Uh, this feels like ancient history in terms of the age of the internet in many ways. But can you tell us some of the early days of the internet and specifically in terms of the role of content moderation and what can and should be done in those type of situations? Yeah, well, it's fun that you mentioned AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy because two of those three companies are absolutely critical to the story, CompuServe and Prodigy. So let's go way back. Let's go back to 1991, okay? In 1991, an individual sued CompuServe because he saw what he alleged to be defamatory or libelous content on CompuServe about him. So the argument was that the CompuServe was responsible for defamatory content that one of its users put on CompuServe. Now, if you remember, like in the olden days, there were a lot of chat rooms and chat boards, and people could put whatever they wanted on these chat rooms and chat boards. And in this case, it, you know, allegedly defamatory speech went up on a chat room. And so there was a lawsuit, and the fe a federal court dismissed the lawsuit against CompuServe on the grounds that 
CompuServe didn't exercise any control over its user speech. In other words, whatever you wanted to put up there, you could. And so this wasn't CompuServe's defamation or libel. It was whatever, it was the user. So if you're going to sue anybody, don't sue CompuServe, sue the person who put the content on CompuServe. Now, fast forward four years, and a New York state court flipped around that ruling, and it said that Prodigy, which was at the time one of the big three between AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy, could be held liable for user content. Why? Because it moderated. In other words, it might have screened for racial slurs or profanity or you name it, but because it moderated, because it showed some control over what users posted, then it essentially treated the user's post as if it was Prodigy's post. Okay. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to note what kind of difficult position this put the internet companies in. So it was a kind of an all or nothing that if you want to not be liable for what your users post, then you have to let whatever you want up there. But if you're going to moderate, well, then you're going to be responsible. So you're going to have to exercise an enormous amount of control to make sure that whatever your users post doesn't get you into trouble. So it became a kind of all or nothing formulation. And, and as we know now from 30 plus years of the internet, if you allow anything at all, the place becomes an open sewer quickly. Okay. So it, the choice was sewage <laughs> or censorship. That was essentially the choice. And so Congress passed what is now the famous Section 230. And what Section 230 says, uh, here's 230, Section 47 USC, Section 230, C1. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So let's put that in plain English. That means that Facebook cannot be held liable for the things that I put on Facebook, right? So if it's coming from me, it's not that nobody can be held liable. It's just that Facebook can't be, but I can. Okay. And then it goes on to say in C2, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Now, what does that mean in plain English? It means that you can moderate what I put up without becoming liable for what I put up. So number one, Facebook by default is not liable for what I put on Facebook. And number two, Facebook does not become liable for what I put on Facebook simply because Facebook has moderation rules. And that launched the modern internet. Anything you know, if you're talking about a Yelp review of a restaurant, if you're talking about a uh, Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb or whatever review of a movie that you saw, or if you're talking about the political debate you're engaging in with your uncle or your aunt or your brother or your sister on Facebook, all of that exists because of Section 230. <laughs> this is, was the rocket fuel for free speech online because it allowed all of these big companies to say, here, America, we're going to let you post on our platform. And the deal was this. Well, I get 
to post on all of these platforms that I didn't create, often that I'm using for completely for free. And that's a tremendous benefit for me. And the benefit that, say, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, gets is they're not then liable for what I say on Facebook. And a lot of this makes sense. A lot of people have called this a giveaway to tech companies. It's anything but. It's essentially importing onto the internet how we treat free speech offline. And I'll give you an example. Let's suppose you're in a classroom. And classrooms are moderated spaces. In other words, a, a professor can say, Look, I like debate, but it's got to be germane to the topic of the class. I mean, if this is a class on race in America and you're going to start debating the Memphis Grizzlies versus Golden State Warriors, just do that outside. In the class, we're talking about race in America. And by the way, it's going to be civil in this class. You're going to not use any epithets. You are not going to curse at each other. You're going to treat each other with dignity. So what's that? That's moderation. We're talking about race in America and we're going to be nice about it. That doesn't mean that if I'm in a public university classroom, that therefore, because those rules have been attached to my speech in that classroom, that it becomes the university speech when I talk. It's still my speech. Same as when you go to, say, a town hall and they have rules that will say, you know, maybe it's a school board meeting. We're talking about the curriculum. So everyone who gets up to talk about the curriculum, you have two minutes. You must talk about the curriculum, not about other matters of business, et cetera. That's moderation. It doesn't mean that everybody who goes to the microphone is now a government speaker. <laughs> so what Section 230 did was import these sort of common sense rules into the regulation of the internet, and it empowered free speech online to a remarkable degree. And so that's how we got the modern internet. Yeah, it reminds me of a helpful book that I read a few years ago by Jeff Kossif that was 26 Words That Created the Internet. Um, this idea of this kind of fueling the modern internet, especially a lot of the social media that we have today. But it's interesting, I think, for a lot of people, when they hear 230, they think of it in the last few or five or six years or so. But this is a 1996 statute that is being applied to a lot of the modern internet in many ways. This The internet is fundamentally different is often what the argument is made. And it's interesting to me because on the political left and on the political right, there's a lot of questions about repealing 230 or reforming 230 or strengthening 230. And there's a lot of questions about what is what do we mean by good faith or what do we mean by otherwise objectionable? Can you talk to us a little bit about kind of where we sit in terms of 230 now? As we, I told you right before we got on the podcast here, uh, interest in 230 and debate over 230 kind of ebbs and flows. We went through a season where it was the hot topic that was the only thing we talked about in terms of technology policy. And then for about a year and a half, we really didn't talk about it too much. And now, especially in light of a new Supreme Court case, it's the kind of conversations kind of hitting a fever pitch again. And there's these questions of reforming or repealing. And then I even have some friends uh, from the European Union who will say, well, why don't you guys just get rid of 230? Like, why is that such a big deal? Like, I don't understand kind of your ideals of free speech and stuff. So can you tell us basically kind of where we are in the debate with 230 right now and kind of the, the merits and dangers? So it, where we are right now is that there are people on the right and on the left who are very dissatisfied with the state of free speech online. So at the risk of overgeneralizing, I would put it like this. People on the left think that many major social media platforms are too open to free speech. 
They would like to see social media platforms censor more speech, whether you want to call it for reasons of misinformation or hate speech or whatever you want to call it. They would prefer to see Facebook and Twitter censor more speech. Again, this is a generality. On the right, what you tend to see is they want to see Facebook and Twitter censor less speech. So they want hate speech restrictions to be either ended entirely or to be rolled back significantly. They don't want to see any kind of social media restrictions on so-called misinformation. They want much more than anything goes platform on social media. Now, if you think this is because, well, that means the right really likes free speech more than the left, well, we have a whole nother conversation to have about CRT and sexual orientation and gender identity speech issues offline, but that's another conversation. But it, on the online space, that's the general that's the general rule. The left, as a general matter, wants to see social media companies censor more. The right, as a general matter, wants to see social media companies censor less. At where it is right now under the state of the law is it's up to the social media companies. And so both right and left want to override that. Both of them want to enact statutes or regulations that tell the social media companies what they must do. This goes back to the should versus must. They want to expand the role of the state in telling social media companies what they must do. Now, the interesting thing about that is um, they tend to, in both right and left, tend to say, okay, the thing that's blocking us from that is Section 230. So what we have to do is repeal Section 230, or we have to reform Section 230. And I'm not saying that Section 230 is a perfect statute, that it can't be changed in some ways. But what I'm saying is that the argument about Section 230 often misses the giant elephant in the room, which is the First Amendment. <laughs> so what Section 230 actually does in many ways is enact the kind of protections of a private organization that the First Amendment provides anyway. And again, let's let's use some analogies. So, you know, there's a very important case in front of the Supreme Court right now called 303 Creative, where the state of Colorado is telling a Christian graphic arts designer that she may have to design a website for same-sex wedding ceremonies, even though she objects to same-sex wedding ceremonies. And she's a for-profit business. She's hoping to sell her services in the open market. And in all likelihood, the Supreme Court is going to say, no, 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 you don't have the power government to tell this private corporation what forms of expression it must platform, help design, help distribute. And so there's this sort of instinct in, in a lot of, and I think a rightful instinct, in a lot of conservative America to say, whoa, government, hands off these private corporations this kind of speech they want to host or platform is really up to them, but not when it comes to social media. A lot of the right is saying, well, no, I mean, yeah, we want 303 Creative to have its own liberties. We want Hobby Lobby to have its own liberty. We want Masterpiece Cake Shop to have its own liberty. We want Citizens United to have its liberty, but not Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, which is an inconsistent, inconsistent view. And on the left, you know, they're a bit more consistent because in everything from Masterpiece Cake Shop to Hobby Lobby, to 303 Creative, they're wanting more government interference with private organizations' ability to express themselves. I would say they're more consistent, but they're consistently bad on that point. <laughs> and so that's where we are in the debate is the right wants less censorship on big social media companies. The left tends to want more. The First Amendment and Section 230 stand in the way of both sides. 
Yeah, this kind of debate over these private entities, these private companies, and that kind of speech regulation is really fascinating. You point out, and I love the way you talked about this, is we often think of the internet as it's my YouTube channel, my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, but these are privately owned. Uh, This is something that we have the ability to use. And that's when it's really interesting when you get into this idea of the free speech kind of rights or uh, the First Amendment protections for private companies, because I know many on the right will say, well, there's a difference, though. There's a categorical difference between a behemoth social media company in terms of like managing a big digital public square and millions and millions of users all across the world and something like a 303 Creative. Can you speak to that, though? Because I think that plays into some of the debate over public utilities or should we treat these companies as common carriers or something like that is to say that there's a categorical difference between those two types of companies and those private entities. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. Let's deal with the size issue and then we'll deal with the the category issue. So the size issue is a red herring. I mean, you know, um, people on the right have long recognized that private entities, large, both very large, Fox News, Hobby Lobby, have legally protected rights of free speech and free exercise, okay? So very large companies. Fox is a giant company, and it's it's right now locked in litigation regarding defamation where it's number one, its foremost defense is going to be a First Amendment-rooted defense in a, in a case called New York Times v. Sullivan. So big companies have First Amendment rights too. Big companies have religious freedom rights as well uh, under RIFRA with Hobby Lobby. So size doesn't mean you don't, the bigger you get, it's not the case that the bigger you get, the fewer First Amendment rights you have. That's not what First Amendment doctrine is. So let's talk about what these companies do or what they are. And when you're talking about this sort of quote unquote digital public square, that's just completely wrong. (laughs) I mean, so you would have a digital public square if you had the government hosting a message board. Because a public square typically would be a part of geography owned by the government, right? And so any part of, whether it's a a campus quad or a public park, if it's operated by the government, then it becomes part of the public square and can be, there can still be regulation, time, place, manner, style regulations, et cetera. But if you have a public university campus and you have a private university campus right next to each other. The private university campus, even if it promises free speech rights to its students, is not the public square, okay? It's still the private university. And so there is just a completely different legal analysis. Now, people will say, well, wait a minute, but then hosting speech is a traditional public function. No. (laughs) Actually, the Supreme Court has very emphatically said, that's not right in a case involving um, cable access television that a private entity that simply hosting speech by the public is not an exclusively traditional public function in the same way that, say, running a prison is. Running a prison is a basic public function. And if you try, if you have a run a prison even as a private entity, you're fulfilling a public function and there's going to be constitutional obligations that attach to you. But Hosting speech is not something that's traditionally exclusively a governmental function. So, for example, you know, if you go back to pre-internet, if I wanted to weigh in at the New York Times, there was no comment box. I would just send 
a letter to the editor. But does the fact that the New York Times has a comment box now mean that it's fulfilling a traditional public function? Or does it mean does it mean that it has fulfilled its private function in a way that is more inclusive than it used to do it? And so, you know, and then you hear other arguments. Well, like these are common carriers. Uh, so a common carrier is an entity, think of, say, like a, a phone company. And phone companies have traditionally used public spaces to lay phone lines. They have relied upon favorable legal treatments, for example, to be able to create new phone lines, to lay new phone lines. They use public infrastructure. And as a consequence, one of the consequences of being able to use this public infrastructure is they receive some benefits and they have some obligations. Now, if you're AT&T, you're a common carrier. But a common carrier of what? Of point-to-point communication. So me calling you, for example, or me texting you. There's never been any such thing ever in the history of common carriers, a such thing as a common carrier of like op-eds. <laughs> so, you know, if we're talking about Twitter or Facebook and you're talking about, well, you're a common carrier of what? Of your political opinion? There's no really such thing as a common carrier of political opinions. Uh, they're platforming and hosting your political opinion, but to call them sort of a common carrier of political opinions is to turn that definition upside down and on its head. And it's really interesting to me, Jason, because we now have a couple of cases in front of the Supreme Court dealing with Section 230, and I'm sure you're going to want to get into that. But it's fascinating to watch the justices actually try to grapple with, okay, if we're going to limit or narrow Section 230, how are we going to do that? What's the structure? And you can see, and as you as you you know listen to the oral argument, or you can hear the justices, many of them are throwing their hands up. This is not what we do. <laughs> it's, it's not what we do to tell YouTube how to design its algorithm, right? And so when you start to sort of peel back and start to think about, okay, if it's not up to private companies, how they host speech, then what? how do we do it? Oh my goodness, you're opening Pandora's box at that point. Well, I definitely want to dig into those cases before the court because they are interesting in the sense that they're kind of focused directly on 230. We've had a lot of different cases and even debates kind of tangentially related to 230, but this is kind of an interesting set. So I do want to get to that. I do want to point out one thing that because in the chapter, you talk about the difference and kind of mention the ideas of the proposals of a common carrier versus a public utility. Is there any difference in those two arguments and kind of what's the nuance and kind of the difference between those two ideas of treating social media companies as a common carrier versus a public utility? Well, both of them are sort of stabs at the dark as to how can we, what kind of analogy can we create to enable greater regulation? So if you're wanting to look at heavily regulated private entities, you're looking at public utilities and common carriers. There are other forms of heavily regulated public entities. Publicly traded corporations, for example, are heavily regulated, but they're not regulated in a way that says you can't, that limits their, their free expression rights. But so you're looking at private entities that are very, very heavily regulated and trying to draw analogies. That Because remember, the goal here for the people who are advocating for this major Section 230 reform is to get more government control of private expression on the internet. That's the goal. 
well, the First Amendment, that you've got to overcome this hurdle. So you're looking around for what are some ways in which that could give us more regulatory authority. And two of the ways are common carriers or public utilities. But as the instant you look at public utilities or common carriers, you see the massive differences between, say, somebody supplying you with electrical power or somebody using phone lines and government infrastructure to enable you to call your aunt. Those are very different things from, oh, here, read my thoughts on the Ukraine war. They're just apples and oranges. And so that's why you haven't seen courts really consider this. And even Justice Thomas, who indicated some openness to the common carrier argument in a dissent from denial of certiorari, did not seem to be jumping all over Section 230 reform in the Google oral argument. Now, we'll see We'll see what happens. I mean, he may he may go ahead and make a, some sort of common carrier type argument or you name it. We'll see. But the analogies of other heavily regulated industries tend to break down on closer examination. Let's dig into those two cases before the court. What are they about? I mean, they're, they're vastly different cases in some sense, uh, but obviously they're kind of at the core of it. We're talking about these type of 230 protections um, in the statute. So what are the cases about and how can we start to think about them in light of what we've been talking about in terms of free expression, content moderation, and even religious freedom? Yeah, so let's start with the Google case. It's called Gonzalez versus Google. And this one is really a, a, a very squarely a Section 230 case. And, and here's the issue presented, and then, and then I'll, and I'll explain it in plain English. Whether Section 230C1 of the Communications Decency Act immunizes interactive computer services when they make targeted recommendations of information provided by another information content provider or only limits the liability of interactive computer services when they engage in traditional editorial functions with regard to such information. What does that mean in plain English? It means does Section 230 protect Google when the YouTube algorithm, okay, so Google owns YouTube, when the YouTube algorithm feeds to you related content in accordance with how it discerns your preferences. Okay, so this is what's at stake is, and the background of this is, you know, sort of is the fight against ISIS. And is YouTube responsible, Google through YouTube, is YouTube responsible for radicalization when the algorithm would feed interested individuals some of this content, radicalizing content that their previous search history indicated that they wanted, okay? And so what's a lot of this is at, at stake is, so for example, to be the recommended thumbnails, like the recommended video thumbnails based on what you've seen before. So that case... It's interesting because you got into the oral argument and the question soon became, okay, wait a minute. If we're not permitting YouTube to moderate, what does YouTube look like? Like there's millions of videos, millions of videos. How does it become remotely usable for a person in the absence of these algorithms? And they distinguish between a situation where YouTube says, we want more ISIS content which the justices seem to indicate would be problematic if YouTube was intentionally sort of saying our algorithm is ISIS weighted versus our algorithm is Jason weighted for Jason and David weighted for David. In other words, what the things that you like, the things that you prefer, that's what you're going to get. And it was pretty obvious that the court from the oral argument, and again, here's a caveat, don't make all your judgments based on oral argument, but it was pretty obvious that 
they don't want to have anything to do with telling YouTube what algorithm it's going to choose. <laughs> that they're just not, that's way above and way outside of their pay grade. I think Justice Kagan said it pretty well. Like, we're not the nine people <laughs> most expert in the internet. And so the exact quote is, was, we're not like the nine greatest experts on the internet, which is, those are wise words. And so that's one of the things is what ends up happening often is you'll you'll take a look at sort of the reality of what it means to not moderate or not have algorithms. And then people go run screaming off into the night because they don't know what to how to handle that massive amount of undifferentiated information. So that's Google versus Gonzalez. The other one is Twitter versus Tamna. And this is just a different, it's a similar, but it's a different case legally in important ways. And the issue is whether a defendant that provides a generic, widely available service to all its numerous users and regularly works to detect and prevent terrorists from using those services knowingly provided substantial assistance under 18 U.S.C. Section 2333 merely because it allegedly could have taken a more meaningful or aggressive action to prevent such use. And two, whether a defendant whose generic widely available services were not used in connection with the specific act of international terrorism that injured the plaintiff may be liable for aiding and abetting under Section 2333. So this is about whether or not Twitter essentially aided and abetted, in this case, the Paris terror attacks by not doing more to prevent terrorists from using the platform. Now, this is different from Google versus Gonzalez because it's not really about Section 230. It's about the aiding and abetting statute for international terrorism. So it is less, in an interesting sort of way, it's much less, it's much less consequential than a Section 230 case like Google versus Gonzalez because it's really narrowing and drilling down on aiding and abetting international terrorism. And it seemed pretty clear from that oral argument that the court was really reluctant to sort of say, You've aided and abetted international terrorism, even though you have tried to eliminate ISIS content, you just haven't, maybe there's ways you could have gotten more of it. That's a difficult sort of criminal argument to make against somebody, or, you know, it, it's a difficult, much more difficult argument to make regarding imposing legally binding obligations on somebody or calling someone an aid or a better when they're trying to eliminate terrorist content but you might think they could do more. So that case is different from Section 230. But once again, you had a situation where the court's looking at something and saying, I don't know that we can say that certainly in aiding and abetting, there's some pretty concrete factors for aiding and abetting traditionally under criminal law. Really reluctant to expand beyond that. Really reluctant to expand legal obligations beyond sort of the previously clear and very defined obligations. And so once again, you had this sort of thing where you're looking at the nine justices looking at this and saying, huh, there's reasons why other people do this, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I know some of the times around these, especially these court cases, there's been a big push among many to say, well, this is Congress passed this in 1996. Congress should be the one to reform it or update it or change it if they're going to do it. And I think that break kind of raises a larger question about the role of government, especially in protecting the public from what's known like obscenity, obscenity laws and things. How does that play into this? Because I think many would say, yes, the government has some role and that we kind of have debates on the exact where we draw the line in the sand. But does the government have any 
responsibility to protect its citizens or try to uphold some type of moral order, even if it's a very loose one with lots of free expression? Just kind of how do we play that question out a little bit? Well, you know, just to say that because there is Section 230 does not mean that these companies have no obligations at all. So, for example, under Section 230, they're still liable for their own content, which Facebook and Twitter have a lot of their own content. They write a lot of stuff and put it on their website, and they are responsible for what they write. So Facebook and Twitter are responsible for that. Then there are forms of, I even hate to use the word expression, but there are forms of communication that are not protected by the First Amendment. Child pornography, for example, is not protected. Obscenity is not protected. So regulation aimed at criminal conduct is absolutely permissible, right? It's absolutely permissible. So, you know, one of the things that reformers are talking a lot about is can the government, and then there are also other forms of, there are populations that just can be treated differently from one another. So children, content aimed at children can be subject to greater like regulation than content aimed at adults. And a classic example is children don't have a constitutionally protected right to view pornography. <laughs> adults, as of right now, pornography, not obscenity, obscenity is a different thing, but por non-obscene pornography is constitutionally protected expression. So uh, when the Communications Decency Act was first passed, it required age gating. In other words, creating mechanisms to prevent children from being able to see pornographic content. Supreme Court actually struck those down, but it didn't strike it down because children have a right to pornographic content. It struck it down because the definition of pornographic content was bad, was too broad, and also because the technological challenge of age gating was so immense and so difficult at that time that the ability essentially to comply with the law, you are going to have to suppress the constitutional rights of adults. Well, it's now 30 plus years. Do we have better ability to age gate? I say, yeah, we do. We absolutely have much better ability to age gate. So, but notice what you're doing when you're imposing an age gating obligation. You're not violating anyone's first amendment rights because again, children don't have a right to receive pornographic <laughs> images. So, you can regulate to age gate so long as age gating is feasible without excessively interfering with the protected rights of adults. So there's a lot of room to deal with some of the stuff that's really, really reprehensible online. At the same time, however, and, and actually there's a lot of bipartisan agreement on some of those points. Uh, you know, it was my colleague Nick Kristoff at the Times who who wrote about the children of Pornhub and really brought to light a lot of the, the ways in which MindGeek, Pornhub's parent company, was making money off of literally child pornography. And there's a big outcry on the right and left about that. And so, but that's not a that's not really a culture war point. There's a lot of agreement around that. It's just a matter of can we figure out a way to make this happen? And there has actually been legal progress there. The big culture war point is over other stuff. It's over are you going to kick Donald Trump off Twitter for, you know, advocating the overturning of the 2020 election? Are you going to kick this person off of Twitter, uh, Facebook for advocating ivermectin rather than vaccines? I mean, those that's the kind of culture war churn that you see that really is the heart of the controversy surrounding moderation decisions online. And in that circumstance, my my advice is pretty simple. Do all you want to try to convince Facebook or Twitter to adopt the policies you want, 
but leave the government out of it. Well, I know one of the things, and for those, I'm glad you brought up the uh, debate over pornography and age gating, a lot of those type of uh, systems and questions. Uh, We recently had Bonnie Christian here on the podcast as well as she has a really great chapter asking the question, should we ban pornography? Not only in terms of the feasibility, but also the role of government. So that's also in the volume, the Digital Public Square, I encourage you to check out as listeners. Um, But one of the things I want to end with, David, is kind of one of my favorite parts of your whole chapter. You walk through a lot of the history, you walk through some of the kind of the big questions that we're facing in terms of the public utilities as well as common carriers. But you end with a call to virtue, which is really interesting in terms of a lot of technology policy, because often it focuses specific on the policy, but you're actually advocating for this kind of return and call towards personal responsibility and cultivating virtue uh, individually, but also as families and local communities. Can you speak to that a little bit? Why why end a chapter really on technology policy with this call to personal and kind of family virtue? Because what we're talking about here is the fundamental American social compact. And it really has two pieces to it. So piece number one is best articulated by the most famous words of the Declaration of Independence, that we're endowed by a creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then the very next sentence goes on to talk about how one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that governments are instituted is to protect these God-given rights. In other words, the protection of liberty is a fundamental governmental function, okay? But that's only one half of the compact. (laughs) The other part of this is really found in the very famous John Adams letter to the Massachusetts militia. And this is the letter in which Adams says the famous words that our constitution was made for a moral and religious people and wholly inadequate to the governance of any other. But that's a very catchy sentence, but the whole short letter is worth reading because essentially what he's saying, he's not saying that everybody needs to be Christian for America to work well. What he's saying is that our constitution gives us liberty, but it also carries with it a responsibility. How are we to exercise liberty? We are to exercise liberty for a virtuous purpose. So here's the compact. The government protects our liberty. With that protection comes a responsibility for us to exercise that liberty for a virtuous purpose. And Adam says it well. We have no government, he says, armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. So what does that mean? It means if we fail in our obligations to live according to our highest values and highest purposes, then we are going to harm this country. We are going to break our part of the social compact. And so... One of the things that I consistently do when I'm talking about civil liberties, because I'm a civil libertarian, like I protect free speech. I have protected speech that I have found utterly reprehensible in my career. I have gone to the mat to protect people's rights to say things that are utterly reprehensible. However, at the same time, I recognize they're reprehensible, and I recognize that I have my own obligation to exercise my liberty virtuously. And so, I, you know, the way I look at it is if we, if each side of this social compact, the government side and the citizen side, does what we're supposed to do, the system works marvelously. If either side, if either side breaks that compact, the system struggles. 
So we know the way this American government has broken the compact by violating civil liberties and through, for example, things like slavery or Jim Crow. And that that doesn't just break the social compact, it breaks the country. But at the same time, we need to turn to the people of the United States of America and say, your liberty is does not exist for hedonistic purposes. That is, you are not upholding your end of the bargain if you're a hedonist, if you're a libertine as opposed to libertarian, a libertine. Libertine and libertarian are not the same thing. Then you're failing in your purposes. You're failing your end of the bargain. And so we have that obligation to live virtuously, to speak truth, to exercise our liberty for virtuous purposes. And so that's that's how the system works. Break it on either side and the system's under strain. Well, David, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here today, as well as your contribution to this book. It was a really helpful contribution. I think it helped to push the conversation along a little bit. I've heard from a lot of folks of how much they've enjoyed that, along with the other essays in the volume. So if listeners are interested in grabbing a copy, it's the Digital Public Square, A Christian Ethics and a Technological Society. You can buy it wherever books are sold. But David, thank you so much for joining us today here on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I, re- I really enjoyed it. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with David and learn more about his contribution to the Digital Public Square project in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.